0: Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast, where we talk about all things related to athletic performance, rehabilitation, and wellness. My name is Michael Falk, and I'll be hosting today's episode, and I am joined by professional world long drive competitor, Josh Koch. Josh is one of the fastest human beings with a golf club in his hands with clubhead speeds exceeding 158 miles an hour. This is an awesome episode where Josh talks about what his process was like to go from a collegiate golfer swinging at 116 miles an hour to a world long drive competitor swinging over 158 miles an hour. Josh talks a lot about the golf swing and how you can improve power and clubhead speed even in a recreational golfer and why it's important. But if you're not a golfer, you're going to really enjoy this conversation because Josh and I go into his injury history and what he learned by going through his injury recovery process in addition to how he plans his training weeks so that his gym workouts don't affect his speed days where he is working on his sport. So if you play a speed or power sport like a sprinter, a golfer, a baseball player or a pitcher, you're going to really get a lot out of this episode and how Josh approaches his training and recovery so that it doesn't impact his performance in his actual sport, which is key for his long-term development. Josh is a really busy guy. Um, He's competing and and also working as a golf instructor. So we carved out time while he was in the car. So we did have a a couple connection issues in the middle. So just bear with us through that because uh, there's just so many good uh, opportunities to learn and take things away from this conversation that I think you're really going to enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. My name is Michael Falk, and today I'm joined by Josh Koch, a world long drive competitor and one of the fastest human beings with a golf club in his hands. Josh also is a uh, instructor and splits his time between Florida and the Oconomowoc area. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to you about uh, driving distance today, Josh.
1: Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having
0: me. Yeah, awesome. So I like to always start with every guest, just a little bit of background, um, Kind of share a little bit about your golf journey, and then ultimately how you ended up getting into uh, world long drive.
1: Yeah, it's been a been an interesting one for sure. Uh, so I grew up in a golf, the Medicus, so you guys might have uh, seen the dual hinge club a while back. So that was my father's thing, um, and so fortunately, uh, kind of grew up in the golf industry. I've um, always had aspirations of playing on the PGA Tour, went to college, played college golf, got out, and then started to begin my journey of trying to make it professionally. And I started to realize real quickly that where I was at, where I needed to get to, there was a gap. Um, in particular, I was having some issues driving the ball. Uh, and so, all this new knowledge, started getting really fast. So, um, and more love at speed with a more fortunate thing I did, you know, I was, uh, because it um, you know, if I get on one side in the spectrum, I think we room for, you know, misinterpretation of what they're actually doing. And so, uh, um, like I said, going to other oh, really help me understand things a lot better.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, if people have never watched a world long drive event, could you describe what the competition is like?
1: Yeah, so it's uh, it, the the competition is getting really good now. You're you're seeing a lot of fast guys come out of the woodwork. Um, you know, it's a very adrenaline-packed, um, high octane. I don't know if that's the right word, um, but you know, it's it's basically a way to just uh, unleash <laughs> all of your adrenaline. Um, you know, and um, you you need to uh, because. Uh, it helps you actually swing faster. So, uh, yeah, a lot of adrenaline, um, pretty much just going as hard as you can.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I watched my first couple, um, online last year and it's, uh, it's pretty entertaining, uh, just watching everyone get out there and, and, uh, swing out of their shoes and and try to hammer golf balls 400 plus yards.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the interesting thing about it too, is, um, you know, when you get into competition, you actually start to swing faster in competition um, because you do have that adrenaline. And, you know, a lot of times um, you'll get your fastest clubhead speeds uh, in competitions or hitting exhibitions where where you do have that extra boost. Yeah. And in my opinion, you know, it, it helps people swing faster. It's really the best form of uh, swing training. Uh, speed training that I think you could possibly do. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really good. You know, it, it's even when I'm not feeling hundred percent, I, I, I still try to get out and compete just because I can't quite replicate that in practice. Um, so.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Um, I mean, you and I have talked a little bit before, but we work with baseball pitchers and, um, some of our professional pitchers in their off season bullpens, you know, they're inside, not wearing cleats. their velocity is never, never there so they they like play the game that's like okay well i'm i'm only throwing 90 but in cleats outside that's really like 92 93 and then like put a batter in the box that's like 94 95 and and then you put fans in the stands and in a game and and it's it's like another two mile an hour so really i'm i'm throwing like 97 98 and they like you know play the mental game of uh of that adrenaline kicking in
1: yeah yeah no same thing i mean it's 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 always interesting um to, to watch even club speeds fluctuate. Right. Um, because I, you know, like for example, if my, my PR on a track trackman's 157 miles an hour club end speed, you know, but I don't do that day in and day out. Right. It, um, there are times where, you know, I'm swinging faster. There are times when swinging slower, you know, indoors, uh, definitely two to three miles an hour slower. Um, you know, when it's cold, you know, two to three miles an hour slower type things. So um, there are a lot of variables that go into actually being able to, you know, hit top speed for sure. So I completely could relate to what you're saying there.
0: Yeah. So in addition to being a competitor, I also know um, that you're an instructor. I know you're driving over to to do some teaching right now. Um, So what are um, some of the biggest differences between like what some people would just say, like, you know, quote unquote, like playing golf swing. Like they're going to go out play golf. Um, still want to hit it far, um, but you know, accuracy does matter a little bit more than um, like a swing in a full-out long drive competition. Are there some big changes that that you make or or you'll make with with players?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I think there's there's a perception out there that you know a shorter, more contrived golf swing, um, you know, helps you hit it straighter and when I was trying to play professionally, that was kind of the route I was trying to go and I hit it more crooked than ever. Um, and what I started to realize is, you know, when you start to shorten things up, tighten things up too much, it could potentially affect your sequencing, right? How you're winding up, where your pressure is, um, you know, what order you're able to fire your body in in the downswing, you know, all those things. And, So when I started getting into long drive, all those things, I I started understanding those things a lot better. And when I started to realize that, in my opinion, you you want a play swing and a long drive swing to be pretty close to the same thing, okay? So from a sequencing standpoint, right? The difference is um, the level of dynamics. So when we're looking at a long driver, you'll see a lot of them moving their feet creating momentum before they actually take the club back and ultimately what that does is that allows them to move the object faster right um you know in the long drive world i always tell people we want to operate at 100 percent dynamics when we're playing golf we have to operate anywhere from one to five percent dynamics so it's a it's it's not as much movement but key emphasis on at least 1% of movement because the movement is what allows us to at least get our sequencing correct, right? It allows our pressure to shift in right order. It allows us to maximize range of motion. Um, it allows us to get forward earlier. And then obviously that helps us with rotation. So it's really important. I think that, you know, people, like I said, understanding that there's a sequence to it, you want to hit it harder, you ramp it up more, you want to hit it not as hard you ramp it up a little less but make sure the sequencing is the same and then i you know ultimately that's what helped me started playing better golf um uh you know on the course as well so
0: yeah no i think that's uh that's really interesting i mean i think there's there's more um there's more similarities and differences even though you know they look they look different if you're just watching them but um, when you really start breaking them down um you know, there, there's still one efficient way to transfer energy from the ground up to the golf club. Right. Correct. Um, so when you're working with a player, you know, I'm sure you're similar to me. I've yet to meet a golfer that wants to hit it shorter. Um, everyone's typically looking to generate more speed, um, and more power. What are some, some things that you see with players that are, um, kind of low hanging fruit to help them add some speed to their swing? Yeah, you know, the big
1: one is I'd say the the order um, to which they're starting their swing. So um, a lot of times you'll see players start the club back first and then gradually shift to their trail side. And what you see the fastest players doing is instead of starting the club back first, they're actually using their body to move to the right first and then letting the club follow. And this allows them to create more momentum which ultimately you can create more speed from that. Um, and it's very comparable to a baseball swing, right? So uh, a, the first thing a batter is doing, and you can correct me on any of this if I'm incorrect in, in saying this because you're the expert, but you know the first thing a player does in baseball is they'll or a batter will shift their weight to their trail side right before mm-hmm. the bat starts to go back. Um, and that's kind of what we're trying to do in the, in the full swing we're trying to replicate that order, um, it would look pretty awkward if you saw a batter at home plate move the bat back first and then shift. That is, you know because golf is a stationary sport, the ball is not moving. Um, it's harder to replicate that reactive state that uh, we would see a baseball player have. We would pretty much any one-sided sport application that has uh, rotation in one
0: direction. Yeah. No, I think, um, I, I completely agree and, um, you know, I, I've gone through some of the Tyler stuff and, and, uh, just as people continue to study more and more, you know, we see so many similarities to that kinematic sequencing and and where pressure goes and yeah, the sports skill is dramatically different. Um, but there's a reason that most pitchers are are pretty good golfers. There's a reason that most, you know, baseball hitters are. Have a have a reasonably good uh, um, golf swing, and, and that's why we encourage so many players to play multiple sports growing up. Because there's a lot of a lot of similarities um, just between how you transfer force and energy and and shift pressure and can control your body in those ways.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's super important. I look back, I think, you know, I probably specialized a little too early. Um, you know, in golf, I think um, you know, like you said um, if you have a kid who's playing golf and playing baseball, um, you know, it's almost like the baseball will help prevent a kid from getting too static. You know what I mean? As, as they grow up because they're always in motion, they're always in movement, they're patterning kind of that, that stepping sequence. So I think, um, you know, once, once a someone starts to specialize if they don't have a really good understanding of what they need to do it could potentially head in the wrong direction for sure and then that's where obviously a lot of injuries can happen because now you're not loading the body you know as advantageously as possible so
0: yeah absolutely so what are some uh some mistakes that that people make when they're trying to um chase speed gains i mean you'll you'll see this in recreational golfers or uh, last couple years um you know you've heard guys like mcelroy or um people come out and say like oh i was trying to trying to chase speed and it really screwed up my game or whatever the case may be obviously you have the other side of of it with most players where they're chasing speed and and playing better hitting it farther and and scoring better so um when people kind of chase speed in the wrong way what types of things mistakes do you see them make
1: yeah so i i think at the end of the day you you have to understand and have control over what's actually powered in the golf club. So um, we have an 80-20 rollover at hitbombs.com. And basically, when we look at the overall speed equation, we attribute 80% of that to proper sequencing, proper powering of the club. Um, And I don't know if the 80% mark is correct. It might be 70. It might be 75. I don't know. We're just using a number to kind of show what we're talking about. But the point is, you're going to get more speed gains just from understanding how to sequence your body correctly. Cause now you can obviously create more energy um, to the end of the club. Um, and the big thing I think people make a mistake with is they go pick up, you know, some of these tools and they just swing them with poor intent. And then when they go back to actually hitting a golf ball, Um, now they're firing their body in a order that is not, um, advantageous to good contact. And that's where it starts to go bad. Um, you know, and that's why I always say, you know, when you get into speed training, you want to make sure you have a, a solid foundation of, you know, how to move your body, how to sequence it up, because if you don't, and you attack that 20%, um, of the equation, which is more or less going after the central nervous system you know you, you run the risk of playing bad golf you know because your body doesn't quite understand how to uh drive the car so um i think that's really really important that's the probably the biggest thing i, I see i also think like there's a perception out there that there's some magic tool or some magic formula under speed or over speed uh, you know that um will help increase their club and speed but there's not um you know it's it's hard work and uh, speed goes up, it goes down, you know, um, this uh, last February, you know, I went through a rough patch. I was experimenting with some things and speed started to drop. And, you know, that was uh, feedback that I needed to readjust my thinking on things, but that's, you know, that's how it is. A lot of this stuff is an experiment. You you play with it um, to see what, what kind of works for you, for you, with your body. And then sometimes it's a success Sometimes it's not, and then you know you just move on from there and make the adjustments.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good lesson, just for for any sport. Is uh, you know the the power of feedback. There's no there's no one recipe, and every player is different. Each cue is different. Cues might resonate differently with different people, but if you're tracking what you're doing over time and willing to adjust with the results, then you can kind of you know, make an educated guess, try it. Okay. That worked. I'm going to keep doing it. That didn't work. I'm going to abandon that and go try this other thing. And I think that's the, uh, the recipe for long-term progress.
1: Yeah, completely agree. Um,
0: so this was a question from a, a, a local instructor, actually the guy that, uh, that I work with on, on my game. Uh, he asked, uh, I told him we were going to, I was going to talk to you today and he asked when you're trying to make a swing change, um, do you ever, uh, slow it down, or do you always try to kind of keep that the dynamic dynamics and that athleticism going, and um, try to make the uh, the changes at at high speeds?
1: Yeah, great question, and the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> so, you, you know, if we look at a typical week or a typical practice schedule. Um, I would say 90% of that is more or less slower sequence work. Uh, um, A lot of it is I can pattern it and that's going to generate the most times when you go fast, right? Your body is going to revert to what it knows. And if you don't accumulate enough reps, um, you know, you're doing the same thing over and over again, um, and, and so, you know, when we look at a typical practice week, let's say I'm doing speed work every seventh day or fifth day, whatever it is, depending on the time of year. You know, the the first six days is more or less just based around proper sequencing, uh, proper um, you know mechanics, if you want to call it that, making sure that my pressure is getting forward, making sure I'm using the ground correctly, making sure that, you know, I'm, I'm loading in particular, like my left lat, right. That's one of the things that I'm always looking at is, is making sure things are loading correctly so that um, when I do turn on the jets on my speed day, right. I have the best chance of, of getting that ordering correct. So, and you know, a lot of mirror work too, I think, um, you know, you the better your proprioceptive awareness gets of your body, you know, and, and all that is, is, is taking what your feels are and understanding what your feels are actually producing. Right. And so, you know, the more you do that in slow motion in the mirror, I think the, the better the player will have you know, control of their body, which will pay off, you know, in the end. So
0: yeah, 100%. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's great as, as always, it, it depends and it, uh, is, is more complicated than uh, one simple answer.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so one of the things that you hear again, a lot, if you watch golf on TV or, or read any golf, um, sites, um, is a lot of myths surrounding chasing speed and injury, um, that, Oh, this player's really working out a lot, trying to get faster. We, they're, they're going to, if they keep this up. They're going to get hurt. That's the common, um, thing that, that makes me cringe when I, when I watch golf, but I'd be curious, um, your take on the idea that swinging the club faster will increase your risk of getting hurt.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think, um, you know, I think it depends how you do it. Right. I think, um, if it's very calculated, it's, it's more or less, um, like I said, understanding how to get your body moving more optimally first. And then going after your nervous system second, you know, I think you, you mitigate that risk. Look, the reality is there's a risk to anything. You know, I, I got in the car this morning and there's a risk I could get in a car accident, God forbid. Um, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, I don't think our bodies were designed to play sports. Right. But, um, you can do the best job of mitigating, um, you know any risk of injury by doing your du- du- due diligence making sure that you're on a decent program you know having good practitioners like yourself um getting you on a straight program getting you on a flexibility program doing all the little things that you know help you load your body better more efficiently and then obviously understanding you know how to go faster from there so yeah i think you know th- there's a risk with anything that's the reality of it um, but you want to do your due diligence to um uh to minimize that as much as possible and i think you know the reality is people get hurt playing golf not speed training right <laughs> so you know it's it's like um you just with anything you just want to be very strategic and very calculated and do what you feel um is is the most optimal for whatever you're trying to achieve so if that's you know achieving um, you know, coming speed, making sure you're seeking out really good sources, right? Yeah. So,
0: yeah, no, I think you hit so many good things. I mean, I, every time I hear that on TV, I just like want to chuckle because it's like right now, I think the stats are that 76% of golfers play golf with low back pain regularly. So I'm like, <laughs> if you just play golf in general, you've already got like a 75% chance of having back pain. So, uh, is, is are we sure speed training's really, really at fault here and, um, you know, golfers don't, right. right? don't have great lifestyle habits. They're not, you know, they're typically in the, uh, in the bar after their round having cocktails and, and up late and up early. And, um, you know, so there's so many other low hanging fruit that you could do that could decrease your injury risk just with no regards to, uh, to speed training that, yeah, that one always makes me, makes me laugh a little bit and, and high performance and, and injury risk. They, they go together. It's like, um, you know, I saw somebody in the baseball world the other day that, uh, that um, had a, a social media thing that was like, if you inc- chase increased fastball velocity, yes, it does theoretically increase the risk of injuring your arm. But if you don't chase fastball velocity, you risk the rest of your career because you're not going to play baseball anymore. Yeah. So
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, the stats, the stats are obviously showing, you know, the, the further you hit it, the, the better you, you can – play all right i mean i think uh bryson in 2021 or 2020 i can't remember led the torrent strokes game driving right which is a huge stat, maybe one of the most important stats out there and obviously you know he did a, a tremendous job you know increasing his club head speed to gain a huge advantage, you know. and then obviously he got he got hurt and everyone you know goes after him and is like oh you know he's it's because of the speed training is because of speed training. Well, there's a lot of things that, you know, get taken in, into account. You know, people get hurt all the time. You know, people aren't so quick to just blame it on the speed training. You know what I mean? So, yeah. um, but yeah, it is, it is a huge advantage. If you can, um, if you can, um, you know, keep the ball in front of you and hit it further for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, so speaking of injuries, I, I know you came off a, a relatively major injury last year. Um, would you be open to, I think it's interesting to talk to athletes about, um, just that injury process. Um, and kind of typically people learn quite a bit about their body or, or their sport or whatever the case may be. Are there lessons from going through that kind of time away from your sport and then recovery that, um, that you'll take going forward into the future?
1: Yeah, actually that was really well said because, um, the disc, Continue to protrude and it did my left arm dead. And, you know, spoke to some of the top surgeons in the country, you know, guys, guy that operated on Tiger, you know, so on and so forth. And, um, you know, everyone wanted to do surgery. And so, you know, I was kind of at a point where I'm like, all right, you know, I'm 31 years old. I know that the peak of an athlete, right, is there's a, there's a short window. And, I felt that by getting cut and putting metal into my spine was, you know, a very risky thing to where, you know, I might never be able to achieve top speed again. And, um, you know, that just because these things haven't been tested, um, they wanted to do a disc replacement, right? So these things haven't been tested at super high speeds. Um, so, you know, you just don't know my, my, my thought process has always been, you want to try to preserve the, the natural, you know, biology of your body as long as you can, um, because, you know, once you get cut, you can't go back. And so in that process, you know, I started seeking out, you know, um, a lot of top names, uh, top physical therapists, picking their brains, started going down a lot of different routes, looked at different practices like LDOA, right, which is designed to kind of naturally decompress the spine. Um, looked into a lot of things like posture restoration, um, set back. I started getting some numbness in my arm again. And I was kind of like, Oh man, like, do I, should I just go have the surgery? Well, you know when that started affirmation and, and finally i feel like i have a good plan and a good that um go top speed and i think that's one of the things that's been kind of limiting me a little bit of a fear in the back of my mind of not you know do i need surgery is it something you know is it something that i can only be repaired um you know through surgery I Feel like i have a good plan
0: yeah i think the uh, the injuries are always a good uh learning experience and and uh I think you hit right on it. Like the body's connected and sometimes it's hard to, um, hard to separate, um, especially like around the neck, spine, shoulders, pelvis, like those are so, so inter integrally connected. Um, you know, sometimes it's, I think sometimes I can go too far from like, you know, the, the big toe to my, uh, pinky finger, um, connections. I I don't always, uh, uh see, but especially around the shoulders, pelvis, hip rib cage. Um, there's just, it's just so interconnected and can all play a role.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure.
0: Um, so I want to dive into training a little bit. I think it's one of the the things that your sport does the best is the players really have an understanding of kind of how the skill work and the gym time can work together. So, um, I'd be particularly interested in, in how you structure your week and training time, kind of blending what you do in the gym with, with your speed work.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the biggest thing is with my craft, right? Everything's built around my speed training, right? And um, when I look at a, a week, I kind of treat that as, as the Super Bowl. And managing recovery is probably the biggest thing, you know, because when you get to a top level of anything, it's it's not so much about everyone works hard, right? It's more or less, you know, who is calculated in their recovery to optimize, you know, their training so that they could take the intensity to the next level. So, um, right now I'm hitting and it will vary throughout the year, but right now I'm trying to hit every fifth day. Okay. So if I operate on a five day week, day five is my speed training. Okay. Um, and typically day one, which would be coming off of a speed training session is, uh, mostly an active recovery day. Okay, like I said, you know, the um the the speed training is pretty hard on the CNS. So allowing my body to recover is really important. Uh so day one is a recovery day. Day two would actually be more lower body. Um and the thinking behind it is we try to get the lower body out of the way earlier um, in a week so that we have more time to recover um, as we get closer to speed day. So within the lower body, obviously there's, there's explosive work built in biometric. Um, obviously it happens a little earlier in the workout when I'm fresh and then, you know, getting into a couple of heavier, um, lift, you know, movements, uh, towards the end of the workout. Um, you know, just because strength is such an important foundation for being explosive. Um, so that's day two, day three, is um upper but more upper body stuff. So you'll see some med ball throws in there happen earlier and um I also on day 3 will hit baseballs. Um believe it or not. So um this is something that I found to be really good uh, especially getting baseballs on my left side, uh, my opposite side. And And there's a lot of theories out there. TPI talks about, I think they call it the Big Bang theory or something. I'm not sure. You might have to check that out if that's correct or not. But basically, Dr. Greg Rose says, you know, if your body is only going to go as fast as it can decelerate, so um, if you're not training the opposite side of your body or the deceleration side of your body, you know, you're you're leaving some of the table. Like I said, that's just what he says. I don't know the accuracy of it, um, but from my experience of, um, training the opposite side of my body, I started to get faster. Um, and I, a lot of times I'll do that in the form of hitting baseballs or actually, uh, hitting slap shots. So both of those are two things that I'll, I'll use and and play around with, um, actually two of the greatest long drivers ever to walk this earth, Jamie Savalski and Jason Zubak were both left-handed hockey players. And, you know, if you think about kind of the end range of a slap shot, that lead lap getting um, lengthened for a left-handed hockey player. Um, it's really important to being able to create separation from a right-handed standpoint. And that's why I think, you know, I think one of those, I think that's played a role in them being very good at golf. So that was something I started experimenting with. Uh, so that's pretty much day three and, and and the hitting baseballs on that day is, is, is partly to prime my, cns for the um for the speed day so you know the, towards the end i will step on a few as as hard as i can obviously not trying to uh you know gas the body to where i can't perform on day five um and then obviously there's some upper body movements in there um we do a lot more pressing than rowing per se um just because um uh, based off my limitations, my, I'm already kind of stuck in more of a retracted state. So we everything we're doing is, is emphasizing, you know, getting that serratus to fire better getting the left lat to fire better, you know, as it loads across me through the transition. So not that there isn't rowing motion, it's just not as much of a priority. Um, and then obviously day four is, is more or less another active recovery day. So a lot of, you know, my posture stuff that I do uh, might do some crawling, uh, just stuff that keeps me moving, but also, like I said, we're trying to gear up to go, uh, super fast in day five. And then that's where I'll, uh, have my hitting sessions. So, you know, that's what I'm doing right now. Obviously it will vary throughout the year. Um, and, um, you know, if I, if day five rolls around and I don't feel good, you know, my body feels fatigued, typically I might push that out a day. Um, because, like I said, when I when my hitting day comes around, I, I want my intent to be one hundred percent, one hundred and ten percent, as I like to call it. So you gotta you gotta find your psycho mode.
0: <laughs> yeah, get the get the bang energies going and uh, uh, get the music pumping and and let it eat. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you, uh, you touched on a little bit there. So it's, it's something that I wanted to, to hit on, um, again, something that you hear a lot of long drive guys talk about is this idea of neural fatigue, central nervous system fatigue, or my nervous system's fried. In my experience, this is not something that other sports are familiar with, um, right. As a practitioner, it's definitely something that we take into consideration how we program, but I think the average human doesn't ever really think about the fact that their nervous system can get tired. So, um, can you just describe like what neurofatigue fatigue is and kind of like what it feels like for you?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, looking back when I was younger, when I didn't quite, um, understand this and I was working out like a maniac, I would have spells where like my brain wasn't functioning right. Like I couldn't, I couldn't think clearly. Um, you know, you, you try to go work out and there's just nothing in the tank. And a lot of times you just try to push through that. Right. And I think that's where the whole adage of, you know, as you get older, you work, you work smarter, not harder or something along those lines. Um, but I really started understanding it when I got in the long drive, um, because obviously being able to have a track and quantify my speeds, I started to realize that, um, you know, when I, when I go out and practice, like, I guess When I first got in the long drive the first year, I would just go out and speed train kind of any day, any you know, it was very random, right? Um, sometimes it'd be after I worked out, sometimes it'd be you know before I worked out. And I started to realize like I'm like oh, my speeds are really fluctuating, um, depending on you know what's going on. And then obviously, you know, as um, being out there and being able to kind of watch Kyle Burksharn. Um, year in 2019, strong. Year, looking at how he was doing things, and I realized that it was a lot more calculated than what I was doing. And um, so then it kind of led me down the route of you know looking at you know how a lot of pictures and um, track uh people are getting their bodies to keep and starting thing and you gotta you gotta understand it to take advantage of it because the biggest thing that I found is doing a speed session at 70% is basically a waste of time. Like you you might yes. as well have a, a sequencing day there. Uh, because if if all you're doing is incorporating, you know, or or reinforcing 70 or 80% speed, that's what you're gonna get. Um, and you'll actually end up getting slower. Um, it's, it's the days where you can take it to that new benchmark, that 110% level that you start to break through and see new gains. And, um, someone who does this really well is Justin James. Um, you know, he's, he's very calculated about when he goes hard. Um, you know, and and this is exactly why you don't see pitchers throwing, uh, you know, starting pitchers, at least throwing back to back starts one, obviously, you know, there's a a stress on the arm um that it, it, they need to recover. But you know, obviously they I would imagine if you put a starting pitcher out there three days in a row by day three, they're not going to be hitting top speeds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and that's the important part is like I said, I think the biggest thing is when your CNS is fatigued, you can't take it to that next level. And if you want to take that next level, you, you gotta take all of those things into account.
0: Yeah. No, 100. What we what we kind of do and watch is we have force plates in our clinic that we we monitor jump testing throughout the year. And what we see is that um, like force numbers stay high, and actually jump height might not change. But when a player is fatigued, we'll see um, their time metrics change. So they won't be able to produce force as quickly. Um, so you know they still jump just as high, but it might have taken them an extra 0.2 seconds or whatever to get off the ground. And, um, that's what central nervous system fatigue can look like. And in a sport that's hundred percent based on speed, (laughs) if you're, if you're fatigued, you're not moving as quick. You're yeah. Like you said, you're just getting better at swinging the club slow.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there's so many things to take into account, you know, um, I've looked at a lot of. Different thought process around it. You know, typically they say, you know, 24 to 48 hours of recovery from your last workout. Um, you know, I know different types of training are harder on the CNS. I know eccentric training, obviously, that um, you know, takes a little bit more of a toll on the CNS than you know, concentric training. Um correct me if I'm wrong on that, by the yeah, way.
0: You're um, you're hundred percent right. <laughs>
1: Um, so, you know, obviously like, that's why I say, you know, the, what it depends on the time of year, right. Obviously if I'm working through different phases of my strength training, um, you know, I'm going to need a little bit more recovery and that's why ultimately I kind of came down to the rule of thumb of, I'm going to try to give myself 24 hours of rest from my last workout before I speed train. If I wake up on that day and my body doesn't feel good, like I'm just going to give it a little bit extra because, um, you know, I'm, I've learned to really listen to my body you know, I, I, think, uh, if you can become very intuitive with your body, you can learn a lot about what you need to do.
0: Yeah. When well, you kind of, you kind of hit it too. I mean, there might be, there might be times of the year that you're willing to sacrifice. Um, you know, you don't have to be in peak mid-season competition form. So, Hey, I'm going to really, I'm going to prioritize strength a little bit here for these two, three, four weeks, like build a base. And yeah, I might, might not be the time that I'm just really going to push the speed knowing that, Hey, once I'm done with this phase, then speeds back to being the priority. Um, and you know, no one, no, no elite athlete can be in like peak competition form 365 days a year. It's just, it's just not possible. You've got to kind of allow some of that fluctuations and and trying to, you know, look at when are your competitions and when do you really need to be in that form?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I think, um, You know, I think one thing I do try to do is like in the off season, I try not to go more than 10 days without a speed session, just because, you know, um, you know, I think there's some, I think, and you might know more about this than me. Um, but I, have read that about 10, 10 days, if you don't get a, like a speed session in, in about 10, in about 10 days, that's where you could potentially start to lose. Um, so you know, obviously yeah. that that was something that when I was down for about three months and couldn't swing a club, right? That I wasn't doing any explosive work, and um, so when I came back, it it took a little bit to get going again. Um, and one mistake I actually made this last fall was I, I didn't respect this principle enough. I was working more or less on sequencing training. Should have been. Uh, doing a little bit more speed work but like i said you know i was trying to figure my body out i I felt like if i didn't get some stuff figured out around that um you know the the sustainability of what i was doing was probably going to be very short so yeah uh
0: so no that's great how are we doing on time josh i have two more questions but i know you're uh, you're okay
1: you're good Um, yeah
0: so you kind of mentioned it earlier um you talked about um, like some of the speed training tools that are out there, like the super speed sticks or the stack system, or I'm sure there's, there's other ones. Um, what role do you see those taking into the program and how can players, um, kind of best use those, those tools as implements to assist them as they try to gain speed?
1: Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. Like I think you know, obviously the golf world is, is all about, you know, finding everyone's looking for that quick fix, that magic tool, you know, some magic formula of overspeed undersea training. Like the reality is those tools are very good. Um, but I, I look at them more of us as a, as a supplement. Um, and at some point you, you got to swing a driver and you got to swing it fast. Right. So um, I always say that the, the the bulk of what you're doing should be swinging a driver and actually hitting a golf ball. Uh, Cause I think it, it probably gives you the best chance of, you know, making sure your sequencing doesn't go, go to crap um, and um, quantifying it. That's the other thing that's, that's really important. If you're, if you're doing speech training and you're not actually quantifying it on a, you know, a decent device, that's not accounting for gear effect you're wasting your time. Um, You know, you got to quantify because you can't feel speed. Um, Some of my fastest swings were swings that I felt like they were the most effortless. Some of the swings I've gone the hardest at were some of the swings that were actually the slowest. So in my opinion, that needs to be priority number one. And the other thing, the other benefit of that is, you know, a lot of times you might go, you might try something in a speed session and see a jump in speed. And if you can replicate that for, you know, a couple of balls, then there's a good chance that you're, you're moving more efficiently. Um, so then, you know, I treat the overspeed, underspeed stuff more as like a, a more of a primer. So if I was going to do that, I'd probably do it on like my day three. So a couple of days prior to actually going fast. And, you know, the good thing about that is, is, you know, a lot of times the body gets complacent, um, you know, it gets comfortable. so throwing different objects, you know, maybe a lighter one, a a heavier one at, at your body, just almost shocks the system. Um, I don't do so much with heavier stuff. I'll mess with lighter stuff a lot. Um, but I use it more of a primer and when I'm, when I'm using stuff like that, a lot of times I'll try to hit something like a, a, um, like a head cover or something just so that it it slows the the stick down as I come through impact because obviously at our speeds, you know, swinging a lighter object, that club's coming through so hard that, you know, we actually run a risk of getting hurt. And anytime your body senses that it's almost like if you were standing on ice, like your body puts its, its defense mode on. And then in the end you go slower because of that. So, um, you know, like I said, I use it more as more of a supplement, than the bulk of what I'm doing, I think that, you know, um, yeah. all these tools are very good, but they don't replace actually hitting drivers hard. Um, you know, it, it, it's like a, it's like a, a sprinter doing drills and then never running fast. Right. It doesn't really, it doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, I, I, uh, I agree. And I think that it's, it's interesting because we use them with some clients and I, I think the golf world still it's just such a, um, trying to think of the right way to say it. You have, you have such a variety of people, right. And, um, if we have a client that's like younger and really serious about getting faster, it's like, well, priority needs to be the golf course and then the gym. And I don't know how much extra we are talking about this nervous system fatigue and recovery. It's like, if we're really getting after it in the gym and working on your golf game, how much extra time is there for three days a week with, uh, I mean, it's a lot of swings when you start adding it up. Um, and can we actually recover from that? Or are we just going to be fatigued and get slower? Um, now the flip side is if we've got an older player that has no real interest in getting into the gym, but just wants something that they can do three days a week at home, uh, um, to try to get a little bit faster, then that's where like, okay, you know, it's, we'll use something like some of those programs because it, kind of for them that like is their workout because they're not going to go to the gym and squat or or do different presses or or whatnot um and so that's kind of how how we've done it um a little bit
1: yeah and i you know i think um you know the, the good thing about speed sticks is i i always say that i um they they give the player of the okay to swing hard. And I think a lot of times because we, we grow up trying to make sure that we, we keep the ball in play and in front of us naturally, um, you know, we don't step on the gas as hard as we can, uh, because of the fear of possibly, you know, having a wild dispersion, especially when I see some of my competitive players go play tournaments, naturally they go play tournaments, they come back and they're slower. Well, there's probably, you know, naturally, I think as people play a tournament, or on the course, they kind of shy away from their max speed. So, you know, being able to give them a tool and say, hey, there's no repercussions of, you know, hitting this ball out of play. You can go as hard as you want is a great thing. Um, you know, from a young age, I was always taught to hit it very hard. I think that's, um, you know, I have two young girls now, and if they decide to go down the golfing route, I would have them do the same thing. I think it's one of the best um, advices a um, piece of advice you can give a young kid from a speed standpoint, um, because it, it teaches them to almost swing with a level of aggression, right? That um, a lot of times is harder to find as we age. Um, and, and that's, that's, um you know, like I said, the speed sticks are sometimes that permission for people to actually, you know, be aggressive and swing the club. So I think there's a lot of know a lot of benefits to them and you're right you know it just depends on the demographic everyone's a little bit a little bit different so
0: yeah no i think uh, i think that's good all right at risk of going off into full uh you and me just nerding out and everyone else is going to turn off the podcast um i know you've used the K box in the past uh we briefly had a conversation about how you used it but Um, what have you found with that, with the eccentric K box that's been so beneficial for your training, um, over the past, you know, couple of years?
1: Yeah. So I think, um, you know, the first thing is I'm always cautious about there, there, there are a couple of things I'm always cautious about when I'm training. One is I don't want to, I don't like loading my spine up. Okay. So that's the first thing. So that was one of the original things that um, intrigued me by the K-Box was I can you know, have some decent load without actually having a barbell on my back. Um, and you know, along with that, there's some things I can do from a rotational standpoint. For example, like with the belt on in a lunge, like a, a rotational lunge, that would be very hard to load if I was doing that you know with a dumbbell it would require me to hold a lot of weight which you know at some point that's probably going to give out before my legs so i you know i like um you know i think eccentric training too is very hard or tedious you know it, it's it takes a long time you know focusing on the negative and this is a great tool that helps kind of expedite that process so um, yeah I, I i think very highly of the k box
0: yeah no we've uh you know we're still we we've had it for, I don't know, three years now, and we're still playing around with the best ways to use it. But I think similar things to to you that we've enjoyed. And when you look at the force velocity curve, um, you know, the highest forces you can produce are on the high speed eccentric training. And so even with like, if we do heavy negatives with people, um, they're moving really slow. And then when you get into a speed sport, like pitching or, or long drive, um, you know, the highest forces are on the, the negative, but at the highest speeds, um, when you're decelerating. And so that's what we've been trying to find the best ways to implement, to try to kind of easy to easier to speed people up on the force velocity curve. You know, you can try to go faster. You can make the implements lighter. You can assist their movements, whatever the case may be. But on the, the flip side, the, the eccentric side, it's very hard to hit high force at high speeds safely with the negative.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I also, I, I like the app too. Obviously, you know, being able to to quanti- quantify stuff, I think is, is really, really important. Um, you know, cause even if you're doing a traditional squat with a barbell, right. I mean, some days it might be moving slower. Some days it might be moving faster. Obviously I know there's devices now that you can measure bar speed. Um, but anything that quantifies things, I think is, is a, is a plus and a, a
0: step ahead for sure. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Well, man, this was a awesome conversation. I really, uh, appreciate you taking time out of your drive to, uh, to chat with me today. Um, I know you're still down in Florida, but eventually when you come up to Wisconsin, I know you do in-person lessons, but you're doing stuff online as well now, correct?
1: Yeah. So, uh, hitbombs.com, we have, uh, the 150 mile blueprint and basically, uh, it's a step-by-step guide to increasing your club head speed. It's, it's essentially the same process that I took and, uh, took, you know, took my speed from 116 up to 150 miles an hour. Um, you know, there's a lot of years and, of experience that I've gone into it. And, um, you know, I think it's a great tool that can help anyone, you know, it, it first starts off by, um, attacking that 80%, right? The sequencing, getting your body to move more efficiently, load more efficiently. Um, and then once we feel like you got a good foundation there, then we work more into, um, the CNS getting the body to, to fire faster and and certain tricks that I use around that. So, um, super excited about that. The feedback's been
0: awesome. That's, um, that's great. And then, uh, um, is there anywhere else online that, um, you do anything on social media or anything like that, that, uh, we can point people to.
1: Yeah. Uh, Instagram, Josh, Gotch golf, and then YouTube, uh, the hit bombs, YouTube channel. So we're trying to pump out as much content as we can. Um, been a little stagnant here the last month, but check out the hit bombs, YouTube channel, Josh, Scotch golf on Instagram. Uh, not really too active on Twitter. Um, use it more to follow the Cleveland Browns, but, uh, <laughs> uh uh yeah. So
0: awesome. Well we will uh we will get that uh website and social media stuff in the show notes so that people can find you. Um Josh is a, a great guy and a great resource. So I'd encourage everyone that's interested in this to to uh check those out. And then uh let me know when you get up to Wisconsin, Let's go uh let's go play a couple rounds. Some of the instructors that I asked about uh questions for you today, they're like are you going to play with him when he's up here? Can can I come play a couple holes? So
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I actually, I, I won U S open local qualifying up there, um, a couple years ago. I don't know. I think it was 2016. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, so I can, I can, I can get it around a little bit if I keep it in front of me. So, um, that's uh, that's awesome, man. Well, very good. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, we'll see you in May. I'll be back up at the uh, practice station teaching up there in may so super excited to get back i love that part of the country
0: yeah we we uh certain a few months out of the year it's it's definitely the place to be <laughs> yeah, yeah for sure all right take all care right, josh yep see you hey dr michael here i want to say a sincere thank you for taking the time to listen to that episode i hope you got a lot out of it dr brett lauren and i are all extremely passionate about this podcast and trying to use it to help share high-quality, factual information and debunk some of the common myths and misconceptions that we see around athletic performance and rehabilitation. If you have a minute, we would sincerely appreciate you taking the time to leave a rating and review on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a teammate, coach, or colleague who you think may benefit. We want as many people to be able to hear and listen to this information as possible. Lastly, if you are on social media, head over to our page at Sports Podcast or at kinetic underscore SMP to follow us so that you get all the latest information. We love to engage. So leave a comment on this podcast. Tell us what you learned or feel free to ask us a question. We sincerely appreciate all of the support and we look forward to seeing you guys on the next episode.